Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Here comes 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller, living the good life in Central Florida. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh man, it's a well. We're I'm doing a lot better than the rest of the country, just about. You know, uh, <laughs> people are going to listen to this podcast twenty years down the road. They wouldn't believe what's happening in the weather in this country at this point. Wow, Houston, Texas is seven degrees, and uh, <laughs> and there's snow all the way down to the Mexican border. And almost all the way across the country. Uh, Lou out there in San Francisco, yeah. he's lucky. He's he's not quite into all that. But I hear north of him in Seattle and Portland, and they got more snow than what they have in, in a century or something. So just yeah. one storm after another. Uh, but, well, down here in Florida for right now, and uh, and glad of it. And so what, what's your temperature it. there, Stud? Oh, uh, well, it's about uh, while we're recording this in the afternoon, it's probably 75, somewhere <laughs> in there. You know, it's, it's we're, we're, we're like living in another country. Well, in your case, you'll probably just wrap a sweater over your shoulders or something like that. Instead. <laughs> <laughs> just, I might do that just to, just to, uh, we're, just to get a feel for what the rest of the country must be doing. Get a blanket and put it around yeah. my shoulder. Yeah, well, you know? We're in Southeast Alabama. And we, typically, we're like, man, could y'all turn the air on? It's 36 now, and we'll be like 26 in the morning. So it's going to get really yeah. cold. Lou, earlier in San Francisco, uh, I think they were in the 50s, and I saw where they're going to be down to the 30s in San Francisco overnight. So, yeah, uh, definitely some cold moving through the U.S. of A. Yes, sir. Well, we're going to warm it up now, man. We got us a heck of a ride today. So Absolutely. All right. And before we get into this studcast, you were telling me last week, by the way, about the growing number of folks who are heading over to your website at tnstud.com each week. And we've been sending fans there to see things like the new video from 1977 of the Cadillac's windshield being broken by Ronnie Garvin. You were just talking about that last week, right after he lost the match for the car. And then there's so much more on your home on the internet at tnstud.com. I mean, there are t-shirts, 
There are photos, autograph photos. You even have the book, which is called Brutus. And you can also get it autographed right there at tnstud.com for just a couple of dollars more. The stud can autograph that book. So that is a cool way to get that done and get a present somebody else or maybe for yourself. Plus, I like the comments from fans all over the world on the stud snips on your page as well. That's pretty cool. And they, and they do. We get comments uh, daily, man, from all over the world, uh, not just on the stud cast and stuff, but uh, on other subject matter as well. You know, and we change that quite a bit. And then we've got that gallery on there, too. Dave, that, you know, it's got all those photos, man. Going back to my grandfather and my wrestling family's history and a lot of the stars from my wrestling family's uh, actual photos and and plus photos of everybody we talk about on every stud cast, every super stud cast. There's a lot going on on that website. And uh, people are starting to they're starting to go there more than usual. Yeah, it is impressive how many photos. I, I mean, some legendary photos. You you attach a photo to every stud cast, but there are then that's a hundred and eighty-seven after this one is done. But then there are other photos there as well. So you've got a tremendous library of photos of people just love the history of wrestling, which is what this this whole show is all about. That's correct. That's a correct. And uh, you know, we're going back a hundred years to my granddad's time when he started. Yeah, there's a lot of history there. And I guess a lot of that history is in photos. It's pretty amazing. Uh, the last Super Stud cast, I, I want to say something real quickly about it. I mean, I had my great friend, Les Thatcher, is on with me for part one. And uh, we really tell the unique story of Southeastern wrestling, uh, how it all started, how it became the best small territory in the world. And uh, we basically lead up to how it was destroyed in 1979 when the Knoxville wow. War started. So that's just that's just unbelievable. I have listened to part one, Ron. It's really fascinating. Fact-filled documentary of wrestling history in the Deep South. It is a three-hour ride with a deep dive, and it takes fans on the inside of what old-school wrestling was all about. I think that's really awesome. All right, we have another piece of that history in store today, Ron. So where are we riding today? Well, we're going to start with today's training, uh, like we usually do. And uh, in this today's training, we got a little bit of wrestling. We got a little hockey in this one, and we even got a, a car lot story. So we're going to learn something about all three of them today, hopefully. <laughs> all right. So, you know, uh, let's just jump right into that, my man. Uh, you know, Southeastern gave away a Cadillac last week. Uh, you know, sad part, it couldn't even get out of the Coliseum before getting damaged. So I this know, week. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, you know, it it had a bad day, you know, for big time, and uh, you know, so this week, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna take our ride. We're going to find out how and if we can follow that record crowd that we drew on Sunday afternoon, February twentieth, nineteen seventy seven, in the finals of that Cadillac tournament. And we got a tremendous TV in this one. Uh, then during this very important first uh, rating period of nineteen seventy seven. And uh, this TV has a unique angle that actually develops right there on television. And it, uh, it's going to really help us to promote this upcoming card, trying to follow that television, that big uh, tournament and the big uh, giveaway of the Cadillac. And I'm going to give, obviously, the results in this show of the card of uh, February 20th. That's what we're talking about. And also the attendance. Learning Tree today 
is uh, basically the gentleman asked, is there a problem for bookers after huge events to keep fans' attention and to keep them coming back to continue building business? Perfect question for this program because we are doing just about that, trying to do exactly that, to, to get people to come back after a huge event. Exactly. Sounds like another great one, Ron. All right, so are we really starting off with a little wrestling, some hockey, and a Carlisle story? <laughs> I bet it's pretty odd, but why the heck not? I mean, owning a wrestling company required you to wear a lot of hats, Dave. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're going to wear a bunch of hats here in the, today's training. And uh, and by the way, before we get to rolling here, what's your horse's name today, man? Oh, you mean Snoreen? Oh, she's, Lord. She's good. She's saddled up and she is ready to ride. Are you kidding me, Dave? I mean, last week it was recliner. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and it was a recliner, and I, I think you said the way you put it, he's a lazy boy. Well, and and, yeah. and then this week it's snoring. I mean, uh, yeah. you seem to be very relaxed, Dave. I tell I'm you good. that your horses are anyway. So uh, you know, let's don't go to sleep on this ride. You know, they don't get in any hurry. They they kind of march to a beat like bum buddy da bum buddy da bum buddy da. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can see. I can it's see good. we're gonna move fast with this I, one today. No so, doubt. For real. Hey, hang on, man. Here we go. Uh, you know, today's training, uh, we're going to jump right in. Is is uh, is one of those that we put we put on those promoter hats today, and uh, and in uh, one way, it's it's just a good old car lot story. In another way, it focuses on many different types of businesses. How to take advantage of your opportunity if you own a business to leverage the assets of your company, and uh, it even has a little hockey in this today's training. So it begins with the purchase of the Cadillac for the tournament that ran for three months, 1977, started in 1976 and a couple of months into 1977, I did a pretty decent job of getting a pretty good deal on this car. You know, I actually owned two of them as it worked out. So, so that leads me to a deeper dive into a little hockey, revealing how much I may have lost in sponsorship and the, all the time that I owned Southeastern Wrestling and all my other wrestling companies for that matter. So uh, there's a very good reason for that loss of sponsorship revenue, though. Uh, I have to say this. on In regards to wrestlers and wrestling owners, I don't think any of them ever considered taking advantage of the opportunity of selling sponsorships. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to touch on that today. Uh, it was not something that wrestling promoters were accustomed to. And we kind of uh, we missed the boat, to be honest with you, when, when it came to that. So. Uh, First, I want to start out with some wrestling, okay? I, I want to explain how wrestling promoters and owners missed that extremely huge opportunity. When, um, you know, studio wrestling started, it discovered television, and that's kind of the way it was. Television, when it was invented, it was looking for a product that worked well on television, and studio wrestling was it, man. And television stations uh, discovered wrestling, and wrestling obviously discovered television stations. In the late 1940s and even into the early 50s, suddenly professional wrestling exploded across America and, and around the world, for that matter. And the saying was, back in those days, wrestling made television and television made wrestling. It was a perfect fit. The two of them was really a perfect fit. So TV wrestling, it, once it got started, uh, about along came Gorgeous George. Along came a, a bunch of gimmicks. Uh, you know, you had the war, World War II, it ended. You got Germans 
that are natural and have natural heat. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so the business was changing dramatically when uh, television came. And people that had never been interested in the sport had never gone to a match. They suddenly became fans. And the most popular of all the early TV shows after the invention of television was wrestling. It just really, really caught people's attention. So I didn't know if very many or if any wrestling promoters that ever discovered marketing their wrestling company to other businesses. I didn't know any of them that ever figured that out. I never realized myself the potential of the huge audiences uh, that were watching TV and all those fans who were buying tickets and filling arenas with the, the power of what they had. And until I left wrestling and got into hockey, strangely enough. So hockey obviously had an advantage over wrestling. It was recognized, along with every other major sport in the country, as a legitimate. Wrestling didn't have that reputation. Legitimate sports everywhere got free advertising, newspaper, radio, television. Wrestling had to pay for that. So my partner in hockey business, a guy named Bob Polk and I, we were introduced to selling sponsorships to clients that were willing to pay for advertising in our buildings and uh, be associated with our teams once we got into the minor league of the East Coast Hockey League. Teams in that league were doing about $75,000 a year for sponsorship. Mostly, they would just sell the dasher board. goes around the edge of the rink, players to get slammed into and uh, mm -hmm. keeps them from leaving the ice keeps the puck from getting in the crowd too. Mm -hmm. You know, the, they were selling those and they, they kind of stopped at that point. Well, so our first season in Nashville when hockey in 1989, uh, Bob and I figured out how it worked, you know, and then we pretty quickly could see, Hey, this has got legs. I mean, you know, there's a lot more here than the dasher boards. And, uh, you know, we, we figured that this is going to be pretty lucrative here. This, this might turn into something. So we took, Sales far beyond just the dasher boards as every other team in the league. Done. By the end of that first season, we had sold $400,000 in sponsorship. Wow. And the other teams were around 75. Uh, when we got our second team in Cincinnati, in the second year in Cincinnati, we sold $2 million in sponsorship. Whoa. So, so you know, I mean, it was like, uh, geez, this is pretty decent money for this part of it and we could have done it so let's return to wrestling and then back to the car lot story i did however get a great deal on the cadillac obviously uh the one that southeastern gave away also on the one that i bought and here's kind of how that that afternoon went when i arrived to buy these cadillacs in 1976 i actually bought the cars long before the tournament it was about a week actually after terry funk world title match and uh, my throat was still raspy from the three days I'd spent in the hospital after Garvin jumped off the top rope on me. You know, and I walked into this big, huge showroom floor, the Rogers Cadillac dealership, Knoxville, Tennessee. And there were six beautiful Cadillacs parked on the, on the showroom floor. Everybody in the place went crazy, man. They all recognized me. And then they started telling other people. They were running out of there, and they, they, I didn't know where they were going. They were going to tell the people in the repair shop and then a maintenance garage. And, you know, before long, the showroom was full of fans. And uh, I was shaking hands with everybody, signing lots of autographs, and finally got down to the business of trying to buy a car, looking to buy myself a car only. 
So that Terry Funk day in 1976 was the biggest day financially so far for me as a wrestling owner. I mean, uh, I had a big day. Uh, Southeastern had a big day. And I'd been digging my way out of a hole <laughs> Southeastern since the day I got there. I didn't have a very good car. Uh, you know, I've been driving an older car since I got to Knoxville. And, and as I've mentioned many times in the studcast, I was having a real hard time those first two years as an owner of that company. We weren't uh, seeing great growth. Uh, I got a divorce during that time frame. And, uh, and until the day after the Terry Funk match, I was pretty broke. So I needed a new car. And for the first time since I got to Knoxville, I could finally afford it. So I end up at this Cadillac dealership. I go on the showroom floor. The, the employees and all the fans are been dealt with. And, and I spot this gorgeous little two-door blue Cadillac, man. And, and then while I'm there, I look over and sitting next to it on the showroom floor is this four-door pink Cadillac. They're both on sale. They're on sale now. We're in 1977 for $12,000. Cadillac, right? So, so, you know, I've been thinking, you know, about using some of that big money from the funk match, uh, you know, putting it away as an investment. And then while I was standing there looking at the pink car and the blue car, it hit me. Why not buy a Cadillac? Just like my dad had done for all those years that he was a wrestling promoter. Uh, have a tournament with it, just like he did, draw a big, huge crowd to give away the Cadillac, and then uh, make the investment pay off for me big time. You know, buy buy this car and, and, and it's as a business investment. So not just for one crowd, I was thinking, when the car is going to be given away, but it would, we affect, it would greatly affect the future of Southeastern period, you know. So that car, if I bought, the, I'm looking at the pink Cadillac thinking if I bought that car, I could create forever fans, people that come and, and, and see that tournament and then they see that finals and they, they get so involved in wrestling that they become fans and buy tickets for years from <laughs> Southeastern after that event, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, all of a sudden it just hit me that, wow, I need to get both these cars. So I didn't tell the salesman that I was interested in two cars. I just said, I want to buy this blue Cadillac here, and I want you to give me the best price you can. So he went off for a while. Like I said, the price was $12,000. He came back. He almost knocked my socks off. He dropped it to nine. Wow. Yeah. and uh, $1,000. Wow. Yeah, he took $3,000 right off of it right then. And then I got to thinking, you know, everybody in the place knew me. And I think, you know, he went and talked to the manager and the manager knew me. And I got to thinking, you know, so, somebody running this place may want me to own one of these cars. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> not, yeah, I'd be a walking billboard for him, basically, you know. So so I asked the, sal the salesman, I said, take me to meet the manager. I want to meet the manager. So he took me to the manager's office and then he was out of the deal. He left, and I go in and sit down with the manager. Then I asked the manager, I said, can you drop the price on this one car from uh, 9000 down to 6000 Boy, he almost turned his chair over. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> but, yeah, you know I mean? Like, oh, no, no, you know. <laughs> he was, he was give me all these excuses and all that. And then, and then I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, all right, let's change the deal. I said, I'm interested in two of them. I'm interested in the blue one and the pink on the showroom floor. 
Oh, well, that makes a difference. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Now that's a different deal, right? I mean, and his eyes lit up, you know, and I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll give you $12,000 for both of them. I could see that he wasn't really jumping at it, but at the same time, I could see he was mulling it over in his mind, you know. He asked me, uh, what are you going to do with it? You know, what, why you want two cars? And then I, I said, uh, one of them I'm going to put up in a tournament for my wrestling company. And uh-huh. he was like, oh, now, oh, gee. So anyway, we discussed this a little bit and the deal was made. I kept that blue Cadillac and Southeastern gave away the pink one four months later. Well, you spent so much time on the road. I mean, didn't you at least feel like you deserve that car? That means oh. one for yourself. If you were a wrestler, you lived in your car. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> in most territories, you were in that car uh, 10 hours a day, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, you, you you certainly deserved a good car if you were a wrestler. Yeah, and then on the other hand, you you kind of made a deal for for the future. So I think the way you got the deal on both Cadillacs was pretty smooth. But uh, there's something else here in today's training that makes me think there was something that you might've missed in that deal. You, you could have come away with maybe even more. Well, you know, Dave, uh, your horse may be named Snoreen and she might be sleeping, but you certainly ain't. You I know am a I smart mean? man in the saddle. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, that's a pretty astute observation, man. And, uh, you know, I got to thinking, you know, uh, about this and, and the, and the subject in today's training kind of made me realize something I never really considered back in Southeastern Knoxville wrestling days or any of my wrestling days uh, until about 10 years later when I got into hockey. You know, and as a sport, professional wrestling was filled with, with a lot of very intelligent owners of territories, uh, but they never profited from their product other than through the sale of tickets or concessions or souvenirs or programs etc. All the things that went along with owning the wrestling company. So, you know, I felt like I, I should have met with the owner of the Cadillac company that day, you know, and, and offered him the opportunity to market his product to my customers and my wrestling fans. You know, I had thousands of people watching television. I got this huge rating, man, and I've got thousands of people filling up the Coliseum. The additional money I could have made by selling sponsorships and wrestling would have probably surpassed all the other forms of income combined that I was uh, getting, no man. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so, you know, all the promoters and owners and wrestling companies uh, like me, they left a whole lot of money on the table in their business. And, and I have to admit, I was one of them. I left a lot of money there because I never figured out uh, hooking people up with sponsorships. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is you were a, a one man show. I mean, literally you did it all. You were all things to all people. So I don't think you made many mistakes in your business ventures up to that point, Ron. Your record is pretty impressive. So I, I don't, I don't know. You, I mean, you were doing. How do you? How, how are you supposed to think of everything? Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, you pro- probably, you know, that's a good excuse for not having done it. But uh, <laughs> you know, when he said to me, uh, "What are you going to do with that other car?" Wow. Now, you know, I want to kick myself in the butt thinking about that because, you know, there's my end. That was all I had to do was say, hey, I want to advertise you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you could have had banners or signs hanging on TV or a combination. So, 
Yeah, yeah. the Rogers Cadillac could have been could have yeah. been advertised all over the southeast. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, it was a great opportunity. But uh, you know, uh, I learned, and uh, later on, I'm going to make quite a bit of money by learning how to sell those sponsorships. No doubt. Listen, hey, any way you look at it, your record in the past is pretty impressive. So, where are we going to ride to now? Well, we're going to ride into that Knoxville Coliseum, man, on Sunday afternoon, February 20th, 1977. It's a week after Bob Armstrong's won the Cadillac that was immediately damaged by Ronnie Garvin. So uh, yeah, let's talk about that card. <laughs> uh, the opening match was Ron Wright against uh, the returning George McCrary, who had spent some time there the summer before. He's back for a little stay. Uh, second match was a return match from the week before. It was Rip Smith who had wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw with Norvell Austin, and uh, this time there was no time limit. Okay, Third match was another return match also. Dick Steinborn was against the original Gladiator. Now, Steinborn had put up his uh, rights to stay in the Southeastern. If he lost the week before to the Gladiator, he was going to have to leave Southeastern, and if the Gladiator lost, he was going to have to unmask. Steinborn won that match the week before. And when he did, the gladiator took his mask off, but he had another mask on underneath it. So technically, he did unmask, but Steinborn wasn't happy with the fact that, you know, nobody got to see his face. And Steinborn chased him all the way back to the old big black curtain in the back of the Coliseum and couldn't catch him. So it wasn't much he was going to be able to do about it. So this time, the match was brought back. But this time it was changed. Steinborn didn't have to risk leaving Southeastern if he lost this one. And the Gladiator had to put up his mask again. And if the Gladiator lost this time and he didn't take his mask off and reveal who he was, he would have to leave Southeastern immediately. That was the stipulations in that match. The fourth match was the Southeastern Tag Championship, my brother and I against the champion Von Steigers. Fifth match was a no-DQ match between Jimmy Golden and the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson. And this was the week after Jimmy's father, that had managed Jimmy, got hurt, badly enough to be carried out of the ring and pretty bloodied by Carson and the Stomper. So the main event was scheduled to be Bob Armstrong in a return match with Ronnie Garvin. But something's going to happen on the day before this match on Sunday on the TV itself, that's going to change everything about uh, that main event card. Wow. Okay. What a card that is. That's pretty cool. All right. I got questions before we ride on. Did Garvin replace the windshield? Did he pay for it? Did you pay for it? And now since you're playing with our minds a little bit again about this upcoming TV, what was that main event going to be on Sunday, the 20th of February in 77? Well, the windshield was replaced. Obviously, Ronnie Garvin paid for it. And to answer that last question about what that main event's going to be, uh, let's get to the TV of uh, February 19th, Saturday, the day before this big event. And that'll, I think, answer your last question, Dave. This particular TV was very different than the normal television. The Knoxville card was complete by the Saturday morning. The TV uh, was going to be in effect for the main event, but it's going to be changed significantly as this television show progresses that morning. So, you know, it began with less going through the live matches when the TV show opened up, uh, just like always. 
went through the live matches with that camera it's being close to him and nobody on the screen basically but him he, he was explaining what they're going to see today then the cameras backed away and there's a huge still shot behind the set uh, behind him and bob armstrong who is sitting there with him and in that still shot is ronnie garvin he's standing alone by the cadillac and this is just after he had lost the match for the car so let's ask bob you know, if anyone at the television station had shown him this video before now. And in other words, when you came in today, Bob, did anybody show you what, what actually happened? And uh, Bob said no, you know, that he, he wasn't sure he really wanted to see this part of it, you know, because he did see what happened, but he, he didn't see it when it actually happened. So, you know, he said, that, yeah, I didn't see it when it actually happened last Sunday. He said, but I think fans around the southeast deserve to see it. Mm-hmm. So Les said, uh, you know, before we roll it, Bobby says, I want to tell you how bad southeastern officials and I feel about what happened to your car. You know, and and, and I was there. He says, I was there last Sunday, uh, but I didn't see what actually happened, you know, because I wasn't standing by the car close enough. And there was um, thousands and thousands of people. There was no way to be able to see from where I was standing. He said, I didn't actually see what happened until I came in this morning and asked him to put that video up. And he and he says, Bob, uh, I want to prepare you a little bit. He goes, uh, I wasn't prepared for what I was going to see. And he said, uh, I hate to have you sitting here with me and having to watch this, actually, you know. So Bob says, it's okay, Les, you know, hey, calm down. You know, he said, it's, it's, he said there's only one guy responsible for this. And, and believe me, he's going to pay for it. You know, so and he's already paid for the windshield, so he's he's fixed the car. So he says it's okay. Uh, roll it, roll the video. That's so so. There it was, man, in slow motion. That video rolled, and it showed Garvin bend over real slowly and kiss the hood of that Cadillac while it's parked right down there at ringside. Man, it was pretty much right in everybody's view, and he reached over. And he picked up this steel stanchion that was holding the velvet ropes that was keeping spectators from getting too close to the car during the course of the day. And he raised that big old heavy hunk of metal. It had a huge round metal base on the bottom of it. He raised that sucker high over his head very slowly. And then he plunged that thing right through the front windshield of that Cadillac. Wow. It just... Wow, glass shattered, man, and cracks ran all across the entire windshield. and. And, uh, you know, that wasn't, but a few minutes later, Bob arrived at the car. But uh, obviously, there's that big old steel stanchion sticking out of the window. And uh, to say the least, Bob was upset. If you watch the video, and I told everybody where they could find it, it is on the, on the website at tnstud.com. You can see Bob, he, he actually runs backwards into the concrete wall behind him. He's like he almost elbows, like he's wanting to tear down the building. You know, it's like, oh, my, look at this car, you know, my beautiful car. Less than asked the director, obviously, to stop the video. And he again apologized to Bob for what had happened. And Bob again told him, hey, Les, it's okay. You know, he said that was a week ago, and Southeastern made Garvin pay for the windshield. And, you know, he says, I'm I'm fairly uh, happy with things. And uh, so Les then says to Bob, he goes, well, Bob, he goes, I've got some news for you and fans all over the southeastern area that just happened this morning. 
Southeastern officials felt real responsible for what happened last Sunday for parking the car so close to the ring and not realizing that they were dealing with an idiot in the ring. That's <laughs> 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 going to go over there and do something to the car when he loses. And he says, they wanted me to apologize to you for their oversight, you know, today. And he said, they never expected the loser of that match to be such a bad loser. And, you know, and he said, especially in one, not one so bold as to go and damage the car, you know, throw <laughs> right. a knife through the windshield, you know. So he said that they had scheduled you to meet Garvin again tomorrow in a match simply to give you the opportunity to resolve this issue between you and him. Then the less continues, and he goes, uh, but then, Bob, because uh, Ronnie Garvin showed up here early this morning uh, when I came to the TV station, and he came to me, and he said, I want you to issue a challenge to Bob Armstrong today. He says, I know the card. Yeah, I'm supposed to be wrestling him, but I want a, you to take care of this for me less. So uh, he said, and now, Bob, I want to tell you what he asked me to ask you. He said he wants to put up $12,000 of his own money if you'll put up the Cadillac again. And the winner of the match tomorrow, if you're willing to do that, gets the cash and the car. So the wow. studio pop. You know, <laughs> they like, wow, geez, that's great, you know. So Bob asked it less. He was serious, you know. Well, uh, you know, I, he was like really taken aback, you know, are you serious, Les? And then Les said, yes. He goes, I'm absolutely serious, Bob. He said, you know me for a long time. Do you think I'd kid about something as important as this? So, uh, <laughs> and then he continued and he said, Southeastern officials were informed of the challenge. He said, I talked to the people that run the company and I told them what this challenge was. And uh, he said, they decided to allow you to make the decision today of what type of match you wanted. You want a simple match with Garvin, or do you want to put up your car against his $12,000 and winner takes off? So Bob's like, whoa, you know, he goes, well, you know, Les, uh, can I get a few minutes to think about it? (laughs) (laughs) So Les said, well, certainly, Bob, you know, you know, there's a lot of stake, obviously, in a match like this. So he, he continued by saying, you know, I'm sure Southeastern representatives would like to have an answer before the show is over so that they can, you know, advertise it. And he said, they told me to tell you before you came out here that if you want to do this, that they want to make it happen tomorrow in the Coliseum. You want to put the car up and he wants to put the money up. That's what they will make that main event be for tomorrow. Wow. So studio popped again, man. They're there. Wow. Whoa, this is cool. So Bob left the set. He's wrestling in the first match, and he goes in the ring. He's wrestling against David Schultz. And as soon as the match started, Ronnie Garvin came to the set with Les. He began to ask questions of Les right away about what did Armstrong say about the challenge he made. He said, did you ask him about the challenge? And, uh, you know, Les said, yeah, I told him about it. He he said he wanted to think about it. Uh, You know, he said Southeastern officials already had Bob booked against you, but uh, they want to allow Bob to, to just get his hands on you and not risk the car. You know, they're not so high on this deal as you are. Right. So Bob was at this point, uh, him and Schultz were going at it, and Bob's making a comeback on Schultz. And that ring was only about 20 feet away from where Garvin and Les are sitting. Oh. So Garvin had just heard 
Southeastern's choice for the match from Les as compared to his challenge. You know, they wanted just a regular match, and, uh, you know, uh, they weren't so uh, high on his challenge. So because of what Garvin had done to the car, I mean, it was now totally up to Bob Armstrong to make the choice for the main event match the next day. That's an unusual situation for a wrestler. No doubt, yeah. His choice. You you decide which type of match you want, we're going to promote it. So Garvin went berserk at this point. He's like, wait a minute. He didn't take my deal. You know, he's like crazy. He's kind of going nuts here. He started screaming at Les that he wasn't going to wrestle Armstrong ever again if he didn't get another chance to win the Cadillac. That's the whole deal here. I got my money. I'm ready to put up my money. So Bob, at this point, about the end of the match with Schultz and uh, Garvin yells at Les, man. He, he really, really in his face, you know. Uh, he says, why does Armstrong get to decide what kind of match he wants? Not me. And why don't I get to decide <laughs> what kind of match I want, right? So and Les is like, well, he's between the rock and the hard place. So about this time, Bob hits old Schultz with one of those big right hands. The same type of punch he beat Garvin with the Sunday before to win the Cadillac. And uh, Garvin screamed at Les at this point, and he says that, uh, I bet you I can make Armstrong do what I want him to do right now. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so the ref counted Schultz out, and uh, and Bob got up off of him, and the ref raised his hand, but their backs were to Garvin in the set. And Garvin boy just exploded, man. He went sliding under those ropes into the ring. He nailed Bob from behind. He suplexed him. He climbed up on the top rope, and he jumped off with a knee, but not to his throat. He kneed him in the forehead. Bob never moved after that. He was unconscious. He knocked him out with it, and he also cut his head. So Garvin kicked him in his bleeding forehead, kicked him in the forehead a couple of times before he he just got out of the ring and left him laying there. Bob wasn't moving at all. And me and Rob and Jimmy Steinborn, uh, we all went to the ring. Bob was hurt. We could tell, hey, Jesus, crazy, man. And uh, we carried him out of there. You know, he was groggy. Beginning to get a little bit conscious, but he, he was he was bleeding pretty bad, and uh, we carried him uh, back to the dressing room. And the silence in the studio was deafening. I mean, that crowd had been popping for the fact that they might have this match for the Cadillac and for the money, and all of a sudden you couldn't hear a single person saying they're just looking at each other. And so it was a shocking match for any wrestling TV show, man. And Garvin was becoming famous for these kind of moments by then, you know. This was what happened uh, on a lot of occasions when it came to Garvin. That's pretty awesome because at one point you guys, you you and Robert were were kind of concerned. Can this guy deliver on camera on TV? And now he's the one making all the moments, so that he's he's really come a long way. And that's a pretty crazy way to open up a whole TV show right there. What what now? But the question is, was Bob able to come back on the show? And did he give an answer about the kind of match he wanted to do the next day? Well, it sounds like now your 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 pony there is a is kind of running away with you again, Dave. You know, I'm so I'll answer everything in due time. But uh, let's get to the first interview after this match, okay? Let's start with that. You know, Bob's been carried out. Uh, it comes time for the first interview, and I think on the format, Bob was going to have the first interview. Well, Ronnie Garvin instead comes to the set because there's no Bob, and he sits down with Les. Les is extremely upset at this point. You know, he's obviously worried about Bob because uh, Bob's, you know, been carried out. And uh, 
He don't give Garvin a chance to say anything. He tears into Garvin and he starts asking him questions like, what kind of man are you? Asking him something about, you know, why do you even do such a dangerous move as jumping off the top rope on somebody? You know, why do you even do that kind of stuff, Garvin? And he said, you know, the Southeastern's considering banning you jumping off the top rope because simply because of the thing that just happened out there, that type of thing. And the Garvin didn't answer, you know, and Les just kept going. Garvin just smiled at Les, and that made Les matter. You know, so Les then tore into him again. He asked him, uh, why did you decide to land on his forehead rather than in his throat? You know, and he he emphasized to him, you know, he said, that's obviously more dangerous than landing on, on somebody's throat. You, you could have killed him, Ronnie Garvin. You know, and uh, Garvin just laughed. He said, so what? I can do worse than that to him. You know, so let's just kept getting madder, madder. And the studio crowd got into it. They were just booing, constantly booing Garvin at this point. No matter, he wasn't saying much, but uh, they weren't going to let him say much. So Les asked Garvin just point blank. He said, uh, why did you throw that steel stanchion through the car's windshield last Sunday? Was it because you're just a bad loser? <laughs> and the studio crowd popped, man. They were like, yeah, I'm glad they asked him that, though. And now Garvin, he's listened to Les have his say. And boy, he kind of bristled up like a big old bear, man. He'd had enough. <laughs> And he he slid over close to Les, and, I mean, he got right in his face. and He started saying something to Les about, you better stay out of my business. And uh, then he said something very personal to him. He said, uh, as best as I can remember, he said, you know, just because you're an announcer don't mean that I don't have a knee drop for you if you're not careful. <laughs> in other words, I love to do it to you, Les. You know? And then, then he moved on to Bob. He started talking about Bob. He's saying that he, he bet Armstrong when he comes to, after <laughs> if he does come to, after my knee drop, I'll guarantee you, Thatcher, he's going to accept my challenge now. Because I want that car, and I'm going to get it. And he, and he said, I don't care how bad I have to hurt that Mamine. He could <laughs> never get the word Marine right, you know. And he said, I don't care how bad I have to hurt that Mamine. Or whatever kind of soldier he is. Right? Uh, right. <laughs> he said, I'll bring my money tomorrow. And if Armstrong's got the guts to bring that car, he said, I'm going to leave that Coliseum tomorrow with my money and with that Cadillac. Les jumped in. Boy, Garvin got up and he just stormed out of there. But Les jumped in about the time he was leaving and he was screaming at him as he was going away. He said something about Bob Armstrong was a Marine, not a Marine. Yeah. <laughs> and when he got the word from him before the show was over, you know, he said, so when we get the word from him before this show gets over, whether or not he wants the, just the match or your money, he said, I hope he takes a shot at your money, Garvin, and your butt. <laughs> Boy, the, the crowd really popped in, man. <laughs> Les got himself a big pop. No doubt about it. All right. So this is a good place to take a break. Let's do that. And this stud cast will continue in a moment. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. 
It may be the greatest wrestling success story of all time. Southeastern Knoxville became one of the most unlikely successful territories in the history of professional wrestling. One city that beat the odds with little chance of becoming a territory and surrounded by much larger territories on all sides. The owner was a 26-year-old wrestler with only four years of experience in the ring and absolutely no experience as a booker or promoter. He was destined to fail at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron Fuller and Les Thatcher reveal the astounding list of accomplishments made that changed wrestling forever. Super Studcast number 38, part one, 1974 to 1977, building of the best small territory in the world is true wrestling history that every fan should hear at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of how it was done, only $2.99. Part 2 releases on February 23rd. It's the best deal in wrestling. Hey, welcome back. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It's another incredible Studcast, and we're halfway home, and we're just getting going good. All right, thanks for being here, and don't forget tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Those five DVD packs, it's probably the best deal in wrestling. It is the best deal in wrestling. Check it out. You also got the novel Brutus. You can get it autographed or not. And then you also got T-shirts. You've got the photos. I mean, just a ton of stuff to check out at tnstud.com. All right. So what happened on the rest of that TV show, Ron? I think it was a great, an incredible opening segment, a cool way to get it kicked off. So when did Bob deliver his answer? Whoa, whoa, Dave, rain that horse in a little bit again. You know, we got a lot of TV to go here yet, man. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're just going to work our way through this program. We're not going to jump right down to the end there if we unless we have to. You know, this TV was, it wasn't just a, a great opening and the most unusual opening. This TV was absolutely loaded, man. And we're, you got to bear in mind, we're in February. We're in that rating period. So that's what I wanted to have happen. You know, it had to be loaded. So Jimmy Golden comes out. He's on this program, and he watches the video of his dad, Bill Golden, getting hurt, carried from the ring, man, six days earlier in that Coliseum match, just like he kind of predicted to his dad was he was afraid would happen. And the Mongolian stomper uh, came out afterward, and he beat two opponents by himself, as he'd been doing week after week with Don Carson standing there applauding like crazy at ringside. Uh, and then Carson and Stomper, they split the interview with Jimmy uh, after that match. And uh, they talked about their DQ match the following day against Jimmy Golden and the Coliseum, a return match. In the personality profile, fans got their first look, uh, most of them ever, at the new NWA world champion Harley Race. As Les watched, and he described Harley's winning the championship from Terry Funk, in the match, the actual match in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which was just a couple of weeks before this event. And uh, he noticed, he, he announced that the new champion would be defending the belt at the Coliseum in just 10 weeks on Thursday, April 26, 1977. Rob and I wrestled in a very rare tag match together. We hadn't had one in a long time together on TV. And then we split our interview with Yvonne Steigers who we're going to be meeting the next day 
we were going to wrestle them for the Southeastern Tag Championship the following day in the Coliseum. Uh, Ronnie Garvin closed out the last match of the show, and he dropped his second knee drop, this time in the guy's throat from the top rope in one show. Two knee drops on two different people in one show. Uh, And this guy that he dropped it in his throat had to be carried out of the building, which wasn't unusual. That's the way most of them left when he did it to him. Then Bob Armstrong closed the show. He did come back in the very last interview, and he didn't split the time with anybody. He took the entire last interview. He was taped up. His forehead was pretty heavily taped up, and he was obviously still a little bit drowsy from what had happened to him. But, boy, he was on fire. And Les apologized right at the beginning of it uh, for what had happened to him in the opening segment of the show. And and Bob could hardly wait for me to finish talking, and he jumped right in. And uh, and as best as I remember, Bob talked about what had happened to him earlier in the show, saying he wanted to let the Southeastern officials know he had definitely decided what kind of match he wanted. He wanted to take Ronnie Garvin up on the $12,000 cash of his own money against the Cadillac that I own now. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, I'm all for it. the winner of it gets both the cash and the car. The fans loved that, man. They started going crazy. He said all he wanted Southeastern officials to do was collect the money from Garvin before they came to the ring tomorrow and hold it until he won. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't trust Garvin a bit on any of it. And then he added that the Cadillac would be parked at a place unknown. And it certainly wasn't going to be in the building tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that if Garvin lost, so that when, and I think he didn't say if, so that when Garvin lost, there wasn't going to be any more damage to his car. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. uh, Fans got into that. They responded to that really well. And then he kept going. He said, because Garvin had suggested this type of match, He was going to get a huge chunk of Garvin's money tomorrow and also his ass. (laughs) He's an ass on the air. (laughs) People always love to get something like that. And now, dang, we had to cut it. We had to cut it. We cut it. Uh But boy, we didn't cut the explosion from the crowd. You couldn't take that one out. Everybody at home must have known what he said. And uh, then he continued. He was on a roll, man. He said, I was thinking about buying a a second Cadillac with Garvin's money for my wife, Gail. <laughs> said, I already got plans for that 12000 So Les was all smiles now, man. He's dealing with Garvin earlier in the show. He was pretty unhappy, but, you know, Les is really, he's into this too. So Bob told Les that he'd never owned a Cadillac. And after tomorrow, he was very likely going to own two of them. <laughs> <laughs> So the studio crowd, they were they were really into it, man. They were all on their feet, they're high fiving each other. I mean, they're cheering. It, it the cheering never stops, and Bob just kept going, man. He wasn't finished. He said something about being glad Garvin was such a poor loser that this whole thing was going to be great for him before it was over. He said if Garvin wanted to continue offering money, trying to get the car, he said I'll bankrupt that Canadian. He said. He'll be bankrupt before he ever beats me. <laughs> so crowd just kept popping. He finished with something about in all his career, he had never looked so forward to a match as the one he had tomorrow. Ended up with the request of the fans. He said, I hope the fans fill that Coliseum again like they did last Sunday because I'm going to send one dumb Canadian home, broke, 
with the hell beat out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, boy, that was a good one. What a program. What a show. I can just hear and see Bob saying that. Another killer TV right there, Ron. No doubt that TV show is going to make the ratings book look even better two months later when the rating book arrived at the TV station. So how about the results on the next day in the Coliseum? All right. Let's see. jump right into it, man. Ron Wright started the day off with a win over George McCrary. Norvell Austin beat Rip Smith. Dick Steinborn beat the original Gladiator again. Uh, this time when the Gladiator removed his mask, though, there wasn't one underneath. It. And he didn't stay in the ring very long. He took his mask off himself. And then, boy, he literally shot out of the ring and he bolted to the dressing room. And Steinborn stayed in the ring and him and the crowd celebrated as the announcer gave the name of the original Gladiator, ladies and gentlemen is Jim Dalton. <laughs> so they, they laid it all out there for him there. And uh, Dalton's day isn't finished yet, though. So Rob and I beat the Von Steigers in the tag championship match by DQ, but we weren't able to win the belts, obviously, by winning by disqualification. But we really did uh, make those boys not look very good. Rob and I were becoming really good wrestlers at this point, and uh, it was really great to wrestle with him as a team again. Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, uh, won again over Jimmy Golden. Jimmy was by himself, and again, Don Carson took advantage of him, just like he had the week before when they heard his dad. And the crowd erupted in the car versus the money match when Bob won. And he won with another one of those big right hands, the same kind that he had beat Garvin with the week before. Basically, about the same looking punch, man. This time, there was no Cadillac. Garvin to tear up when it was over and uh, Garvin simply went to the dressing room. He had his head hung low, man. Uh, <laughs> and mob Bob, man, when he left the ring, boy, and he had two handfuls of cash. They brought him the cash, double handfuls, man. They were all in hundreds and uh, handed it to him. Uh, he had both hands full of $100 bills. It was, it was really a great, great afternoon for fans. I assume that also means Miss Gale ended up with the new Cadillac as well. Man, I wish I could have been there for that myself. What was it? How'd you do on the attendance? Y'all make a few bucks on that one? Well, I tell you, man, it was even bigger than the Cadillac finals, you know, and uh, Robin, I had done our job as bookers. I mean, we took a record crowd from the week before and we added another 200 to it. It was a total of 5,700 people, another new record in the Coliseum. Wow. We were but just really rocking. Was that like standing room only? What was the max in your mind for the, for that facility? We're looking at 6,000, maybe just slightly over 6,000 in seats. Yeah. In seats. Wow. Okay. Yeah. In seats now, you know, and, and then it just depends in on how many people they're going to allow to stand up. Okay. But back then, was there a concern with the fire marshal? Was he there wringing his hands or anything like that? Well, you know, uh, that was a big old building. It was the biggest building in Knoxville, and it didn't sell out very often for anything. Right. So, you know, I doubt the fire marshal showed up every day. I was hoping that the fire marshal wasn't looking at these figures in the newspapers the next day. <laughs> I decided I might better go down there and look at this. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so I was hoping he wasn't going to show up, <laughs> to be honest with you. So, you know, we could add a little bit of seats to that place. 
In fact, I got to thinking about it at the end of that day. You know, uh, we got this world championship coming up in April with Harley. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I went and started talking the next week with the Coliseum manager, a guy named Fred McCallum. And we started talking about and designing uh, how to add risers on the main floor behind ringside where we might could put another six or 800 people on those risers. Wow. That's going to bring that building uh, above 6,000, somewhere between six and 7,000. Yeah. That's what I, if you, man, if you're going to add six or 800 seats, then yeah, you're, you're easily uh, bumping that figure up. That's another great one right there, Ron. All right. So they're somehow getting, getting better every week. I'm not surprised by that at all. I think it is time. It is time indeed to take a seat under the learning tree. Once again, Ron, remind us again, who asked the question and what was it about? Well, this time our learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Larry Foster. And uh, Larry asked for me the perfect question for this learning tree today. In fact, I'd been sitting on this question for weeks when I saw it because I knew that down the road, we're, we're going to get to something like this. And his question was, he asked, is there a problem for bookers when they have huge events to keep fans' attention and to keep them coming back so they can continue building business? It's a great question. You know, they're under pressure. When you have that job, you are under a lot of pressure in the wrestling business. You were in those days, and you are, I'm sure, in these days. Mm -hmm. So when Booker's got the world champion for a title defense, or had a finals like this Cadillac tournament, you know, that lasted for months. If they did a Starcade over there in mid-Atlantic, if they did a WrestleMania for WWE, they were always concerned, the Booker, about what they needed to do to draw a big crowd the week after these big events. It was extremely important not to have crowds fall dramatically after blowing off these big, huge angles and these big, huge programs or anything that produced an extra-large crowd. For Mm -hmm. Booker's, it was called simply following the big show. Can you follow what you did last week? Mm. So uh, Booker's could never sit upon their laurels. They could never sit on the fact that the building was sold out. They needed to follow that event with something. They they had to keep the momentum growing and uh, keep the big event going uh, into the next week. Big crowd after big crowd. That's what true momentum was in wrestling. And it signaled you were steadily growing and you were solidly building your business. So it was a booker's responsibility to keep fans coming back. You know, it was important for bookers to keep fans coming back uh, because that was a sign that the business was uh, was continuing to grow. And you had to do it every week as a booker. The pressure was there every week. And if crowds dropped off slightly on a regular basis, Every booker realized, hey, I got to do something here, man. I've got to get something going. So my father always had a great saying about that subject. He always told me when he came to booking, he said, your company is either growing or it's dying. And it took me a while to understand exactly what that meant. Hmm. And exactly what does that mean, Ron? Well, it means that as a booker, if crowds constantly grow, no matter how slow the growth, uh, you're obviously headed in the right direction. Right. If they start to consistently fall off for whatever reason, then if you're a booker, you better turn things around right now, real quick, or your business could die. You could get, It could drop just as fast as it grew. 
So my father's saying, uh, you either growing or dying, was his way of emphasizing the urgency of never allowing your crowds to consistently drop every week. Wow. Uh, good bookers got that done. They didn't yeah. know that to happen. And if they felt it was happening, they had to get that momentum back as soon as possible. So last week's record crowd for the Coliseum that we're talking about today, and uh, it's a great example of that constant booker challenge. So Rob and I started thinking when we knew this Cadillac uh, was coming up and the finals were coming up, we started thinking way ahead of that, how we're going to follow this Cadillac finals crowd. We had to start thinking long before the day, because if you waited to the day of the event, it's too late to have an idea that's going to draw for you next week. You know, and if you're going to bring back just a regular card after some big thing like the winning of the Cadillac, you're going to take a pretty dramatic drop in your crowd. So the main event on the card that we talked about today, the one that developed from the television, that card uh, was an answer to you, Mr. Foster. That was an answer to your question about bookers being able to follow huge events. We not only followed the Cadillac finals by creating another angle that held up the size of the crowd, we actually drew a bigger crowd than the big event. Momentum wasn't lost at all because of the Cadillac finals. Me and Rob had planned long before the finals an angle that was going to be even stronger than the finals itself. Uh, we did something even my father never did, and his great record breaking Cadillac matches that he had every promotion he ever ran as he took us moving around the country, building dead territories into big, huge ones. It happened in Mobile, Alabama, 1957, Memphis, Tennessee, 1960. Phoenix, Arizona, 1963, Atlanta, Georgia, 1966. But never did my dad ever think of a way to get that second huge house out of the Cadillac. So a way to follow huge final crowds with a bigger crowd, we accomplished that on Sunday, February 20th, 1977. And out of a fit of rage, uh, because of losing the Cadillac, Ronnie Garvin went to the car, plain sight of everyone in the building. And he smashed out the front windshield of that Cadillac. The beauty of this angle was the fact that fans could actually see the result close up and personal before they left the Coliseum that day. And they did by the thousands. They gathered around that car as soon as that match was over. Some fans lingered for almost an hour after the matches were over that day just to go and see that car. And to see that big steel pipe sticking out of the front window, all those fans not only had the story to tell about how great the match was between Armstrong and Garvin, they had a much bigger story to tell about what that beautiful Cadillac looked like with that steel stanchion sticking out of the shattered window, man. My father also had another say. Word of mouth was the best advertising in the world. And he was right. So that day, 5,000 people walked away from that building, and they told everybody they knew that they saw that next week what they saw that day in the Knoxville Coliseum. And that was another reason that Southeastern was growing so fast, mm -hmm. because people were seeing these, experiencing these events that were just far beyond anything they ever comprehended or ever expected to see, and mm -hmm. they told others about it. So automatically, we had our return match. But this time, it was with for lots more than just the car. 
This time it was for Garvin's $12,000 against the possibility of winning the car. And when he lost that time, Bob Armstrong kept the car and he got Ronnie Garvin's 12000 bucks. So Rob and I just basically solved every booker's dilemma. We turned a huge event where many bookers would, as my dad used to say, drop the ball, as in fumble the football, right? A lot of bookers' dad said, well, he dropped the ball. He had a chance to draw a big house. He, he didn't have a good angle or something happened. So, you know, we didn't drop the ball. You know, instead of dropping the ball, we drew a bigger crowd the following week after the finals, which should have been the monster crowd. Wow. And the fact that you two were third generation wrestlers and bookers obviously had something to do with that. Both of you learned from your family's success over the years in the sport. The Welch family, of course, including the Fields and Golden sides, were widely recognized as responsible for much of the huge success of Southeastern professional wrestling, no doubt. Yep. You know, uh, wrestling across the South, basically. I mean, we pretty much, uh, Roy and my granddad at one time controlled everything from, gosh, uh, all of Kentucky South to the Gulf of Mexico and from uh, Louisiana East to Georgia. Mm -hmm. We have a real presence in Southern wrestling, and uh, we were kind of exhibiting it that day, uh, Rob and I, by uh, packing another crowd in after a big event. So, uh, you know, that's what a lot of people say about my family. That Welch family is responsible for a lot of of the success that Southern wrestling had. But I prefer to give the credit to God, to tell you the truth, Dave. I mean, uh, for everything that happened to me and my family and me and my family's history. Well, and I'm not surprised by that. Credit where credit is due. It's another great one, Stud, no doubt about it. Okay, folks, on Facebook, like and follow the Stud on his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and the author, Ron Fuller Welch page, and you will automatically become friends with a legend. Twitter and Instagram, it's the same on both. Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 38 is setting new records. No surprise there. Les Thatcher joins the stud for this one. They recall everything that made Southeastern wrestling the most successful small wrestling territory in the world from 1974 to 1977. That's in part one at tnstud.com or patreon.com studcast for three hours of fascinating wrestling history for only $2.99. Many say that's the best deal in wrestling. And, of course, the Southeastern Continental DVD 5-pack, still another of the best deals in wrestling. 60 matches, 12-plus hours of some of the greatest wrestlers and matches ever recorded. Get it now at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store and score it for only $39.99, and that includes shipping. Own your piece of wrestling history today. And of course, Brutus, the novel, is still rampaging through the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Rod's novel has more than 45 star reviews, many of which compare it to the legendary motion picture Jaws. This may be the stud's finest work ever. Get it also on Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or TNStud.com. Click Stud Store to get the personally autographed copy by Ron himself. All right, so that's a mouthful right there. So where to next week? Where do we ride next week, Ron? 
we're going to do our today's training next week's going to feature something that we were doing uh, that uh, few did back in 1977 on their TV shows. It's going to cover an outside promo that we did with the Mongolian Stomper. We're going to show some of his personal training program, and we're also going to show how his inimitable manager, Don Carson, affected his, his ability to do his uh, training. Uh, so this one is, is a hilarious piece. I mean, uh, fans, we, we must have shown this uh, four or five times because fans just love it. I'm not going to tell uh, people yet what it's all about, but uh, this one is really funny. February 27th, we're going to talk about uh, that show, 1977. Uh, the Massive McGuire Twins are on that card. Uh, Billy Spears is on that card. Bob Armstrong oh. got his first match with the Stomper uh, on that card, February 27th, 77. The Learning to question next week asks, how did talent traveling so much in territory days find time to learn perfect moves before the show, at home on in their own rings, or from wrestling in the actual matches themselves. Wow. A Stomper Carson special for TV. That's got to be awesome right there. And then the famous McGuire twins on top of that, the biggest twins in the history of probably any sport. And how did wrestlers find time and where to perfect their craft? Where did they do that? We'll get answers on that next week. They just keep getting better, Ron. Way to go. Well, I appreciate it, Dave. And it's just, it's because of what was really happening. I mean, I'm just relaying what was actually going on. We're just into a great time frame. It's going to be like this from here on. It's just, uh, we're lucky. The good Lord's blessing us. And uh, we have great talent. Uh, we're in a beautiful part of the country in the mountains. And uh, it was a glorious time to be a wrestler, and especially if you were wrestling for Southeastern. I want to thank you, Dave, for the great job today. And I want to thank Lou out there in San Francisco, who's recording this for us. And I also want to thank everybody out there that rode with us today, as always. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. And God bless you too, Ryan. This is David Summers also thanking you and reminding you, Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>